Welcome to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. I'm John Belazier, CEO of Saluna, and today we'll be talking about why Bitcoin. We'll explore the rising interest in Bitcoin from institutions. We'll make the case for Bitcoin as a form of money. We'll also explore uh, major pushes into the digital asset, into Bitcoin, specifically big corporations now investing directly in the asset. We'll look at why everyone is considering it an alternative to gold, a better alternative to gold, ETFs and the like. We'll also look at regulatory trends that we should be worried about. And we'll look at Bitcoin's relationship to renewable energy. And of course, all along the way, we'll have some predictions about the future. I'm joined today by a special guest, Andy Edstrom. He is author of Why Bitcoin? He's also a financial advisor and and the head of institutional at Swan Bitcoin. He's best known for his book, Why Bitcoin? But he's also known most recently for opining that MicroStrategy might borrow in order to buy Bitcoin. And he's also known for shaming wealth managers for not owning Bitcoin for their clients. Andy, welcome to the show. John, it's great to be with you. Well, I always start these conversations by asking for your GPS location. Where are you, where are you uh, hailing from right now, Andy? <laughs> yeah, so I live in West Los Angeles and I'm sitting in my home office and uh, today I can't see the ocean quite because it's a little bit uh, overcast out there. But uh, yeah, it's 65 and sunny, and uh, I like to talk about that all the time uh, to people who are in colder places. <laughs> <laughs> and I am one of them uh, here in New York City. We just got buried in you know the storm of the st- storm of the year so far. Um, you know what's surprising every every year around this time for my birthday, there's some major storm. You know, it's like clockwork. I think the year that we don't have a storm, I should be worried. <laughs> what can say about me? <laughs> well, happy birthday. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. A couple of weeks ago, it happened. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, the nor'easter rolls in. So, you know, another question I'd like to ask you, we've all been locked up in our homes for the most part the last 15 months or so. And, you know, my my uh, I have a little baby girl, so I sort of see the world through her lens in this environment. What What's the biggest surprise you've had during this pandemic? Biggest surprise? Yeah, that's a good question. Um I guess that I have to, you know, take the same view as a lot of people in finance, which is I was surprised at the speed of the recovery in financial markets. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, in retrospect, it's sort of not so surprising because, number one, the virus turned out to be far less uh, deadly than some people thought. I mean, the case fatality rate was probably an order of magnitude lower than it looked like it might have been in the right. earlier days. So in that respect, it's not surprising that the financial markets came back. And then when you also factor in the, you know, the extreme lengths that the Fed and other central banks took, uh, you know, to, to remedy the problem, then it's not so surprising. But as far as in the moment, yeah, what surprised me, it was the, it was the speed of the reversal of the down te- uh, downtrend in financial markets. And I guess I'll add one more thing, which was I was, you know, one of those guys who was, you know, in Telegram groups, you know, being in the Bitcoin arena, people were talking about this spreading virus in January and February. And so I had Mm -hmm. some indication that it was coming. However, I did not anticipate that Western governments would go, would basically shut down their economies. Okay. Right. That did surprise me as well. 
I was surprised yeah. by the uh, lengths of, um, you know, basically a policy, the actions that were taken um, to try and contain the virus, even after it was sort of obvious that, that it had gotten a pretty strong foothold in most Western countries. So that mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. surprised me. No, I would, I would agree. Uh, that, that surprised me as well. The, you know, the effect of locking down entire economies was, you know, by some measures drastic, but by other measures probably required, right, to contain this thing. But the fact that they made that decision, to your point, is they went all the way there was, was pretty surprising. Yes. And at the stage of the game, I mean, my view is, my view has always been, you know, that those kinds of policies, especially extreme ones, made a lot of sense uh, mm. early in the game. But mm-hmm. I was surprised at, at the, yeah, at the steps that were taken, like I said, after it had sort of already, uh, already taken hold anyway. Yeah, no, that's great. So I'm going to tell you a quick story. About four years ago, I was on my way to on a trip with the family to the, to a beach, kind of what we do around the, the holiday holiday season. And I get a call from a longtime friend of mine, investor and mentor, and he says, John. And I say, hey, Michael. And he says, um, have you chosen anything yet? I was sort of in between roles, if you will, as a CEO. And I says, no, I, you know, I'm still looking at those ones I was talking, telling you about. Well, listen, you, you need to come into my office you know, and, and, and look at this opportunity that we have. And I said, okay, what, what do you, what, what is it that you have? Cause you do like industrial companies and stuff like that. I'm a software guy, you know? And he said, well, we have this interesting combination of renewable energy and blockchain crypto technologies. And I'd really like you to come in. Look, we want you to potentially be the CEO of it. So you got to come in and look at it. And the only thing I heard there was blockchain Bitcoin. Hmm, that's interesting. I've heard about that. I'd love to learn more about that. <laughs> the renewable energy part sort of, you know, went into my brain out the other side because I don't know anything about that. And that was my entree into the entire space, into Bitcoin, into renewable energy. And I've been sort of, you know, learning very fast over the last three and a half, four years now. What's your story? What's your equivalent story? Yeah. So I was one of those uh, third exposure guys when it comes to Bitcoin and crypto. Um, Mm -hmm. I read an article in The Economist in 2013. I was on vacation. Uh, Speaking of travel, I was on vacation with my wife and my small son uh, in Eastern Europe. And I was uh, driving across the border, I think, into the Czech Republic. Or actually, I think it was into into Hungary. And I was listening, you know, to The Economist on podcast. And there was an article about it. And it it just totally went over my head. So that was first exposure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the second exposure yeah. was 2016 uh, when Ethereum hard forked. That was the DAO hack. Right. And again, you know, I had no idea what, what they were talking about. But the third exposure was a friend of mine, a uh, guy named, by the name of Arun Rao, <clears throat> who's in software, uh, mm-hmm. speaking of software. And he, right. you know, he basically put it back on my radar. And so mm-hmm. then I finally started to do my homework and I saw this new mushrooming uh, market, let's say, yeah, I don't even want to call it an asset class. Um, but, but a market of assets that were trading and it was mushrooming. And I thought, wow, this looks kind of interesting. There's something going on here. You know, is, is it a bubble? Is it a scam? Is it, you know, the, the brand new internet, you know, what is it? And so that was my, I was, that was my exposure in, let's say second quarter of 2017. And I didn't buy or make any investment until the third quarter of 2017. Wow. And what did you do? Like, did you just sort of 
continue following it? Did you join any sort of Reddit groups? Like, how did you how did you sort of continue to? Yeah, I was sort of on my own. Right. Yeah, I was sort of on my own. I didn't have anyone. Uh, I wish I had, you know, someone like you to, you know, a friend or or a colleague to sort of tap me on the shoulder, you know, yeah. who knew more more about it than I did. I right. was I was basically alone. So I was reading, uh, you know, basically just reading everything I could find on the Internet. I actually didn't spend that much time on Reddit. It, in retrospect, I maybe should have, but um, but I mostly was, yeah, just searching, you know, reading TechCrunch, mm-hmm. um, a few sort of technical or let's say technology sites on the internet. And then actually by that point, there had been a few books read or written, excuse me. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I read, I don't know, Nathaniel Popper's Digital Gold and there yeah. were a few others. Um, yeah, I love that under, book, yeah. I'm trying to remember Understanding Bitcoin, I think, right. was uh, published right. in 2015. So yeah, so that I was just sort of hoovering it all up, and then simultaneously, I wrote a research paper. So uh, you know, of course, to focus the mind and to test some hypotheses, mm-hmm. I put a bunch on paper. You know, it's twenty or thirty page paper, and uh, started sharing it in draft format with uh, people I knew, friends, former colleagues in the investment industry, and uh, that that's sort of how I started climbing the curve. Mentally, intellectually doing my research and uh, learning and trying to figure this thing out. Got it. You authored this book called Why Buy Bitcoin, which effectively is making the case for why one should own the asset, whatever you call it. Uh, yep. Tell me how, what was the journey that led you to the point where you wanted to buy that? Is, is, it, is it about making the case that investment managers, was there something happening and your investment manager buddy's like, yeah, I'm not going to tell my client to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> and, and and you were hearing their arguments, which were, I'm sure, unfounded because they didn't do as much research as you. Tell me the story of how you, you came to deciding to turn that 20-page research paper into a book. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to do that. So there are a couple steps there. Yeah. So I bought my first Bitcoin right after the, uh, the Bitcoin Cash hard fork. So there was this sort of civil war within Bitcoin yeah. um, between two parties, one that wanted to increase the block size um, in perpetuity and one that did not want to do that, wanted to keep the data structure as small as possible, um, you know, for reasons we can get into, but I won't right. dwell on here. Okay. So I bought my first Bitcoin, you know, soon after that, which is, you know, I think it was in the three to $4,000 range. And, and I bought a bunch of other crypto assets, let's call them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cryptocurrencies. And so I went through that bubble period and it was a bubble, uh, you know, in retrospect in late 2017, prices went up and then they crashed for pretty much all the, uh, the assets in the space. And, you know, I continued to do research, continued to hold and invest through the following year, which is 2018. And I was finding, yeah, what you described is, you know, colleagues, friends, other investors were dismissing it as, oh, you know, that was fun. Uh, it was a bubble it's over and um you know let's let's uh whatever it it was tulips it was beanie babies you know let's move on with life and i didn't see that as <laughs> the case at all um i saw a promising new technology uh but well new is i'm not even sure i would call it new at that point i mean we were sort of a decade into uh to the life of bitcoin and i actually saw something that was here to stay as arguably not that new and as having huge potential uh, for upside as an investment, as mm-hmm. well as likely having, you know, significant impact on, uh, on the greater world. So I decided that I needed to educate my 
colleagues. I needed to educate my friends and my family. And as long as I was going to do that, well, why not create a product that would be digestible to hopefully any intelligent reader? And so that's what I sought to do with Why Buy Bitcoin. I started writing it in the depths of the bear market in January of 2019, right? Bitcoin had peaked at almost $20,000 per Bitcoin. And at that moment that I started writing, it was well under $4,000. So it had lost most, more than 80% of its value. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I, I wrote it to educate people, uh, all the groups I mentioned. I also wrote it, honestly, to harden my own conviction, right? There's no, mm -hmm. there's no better discipline uh, for understanding a topic than, uh, than really putting it into cogent prose. And so that's another reason that, uh, that I published the book. And the book came out in September of 2019. That's great. And, 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 and as I read it, I mean, it's, it, 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 you, you do a good job of starting with the foundation of money and then <laughs> talking about all the problems with it and then using that to show how the innovations that come with this could be, you know, significant drivers to the future. Could you kind of take us through the argument? Why buy Bitcoin? Yeah. OK, I will do my best to uh, to do it in summary format. Yeah, the, uh, the Reader's Digest. That's right. That's right. The, the short version. But everybody still has to read the book. It's a great book. I, 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 <laughs> I appreciate I'm, that. I really I enjoyed it. That, John. Yeah. So, so the short story is that mm -hmm. the thing that most people don't realize is money has characteristics that make it useful as money. Okay. So that's mm -hmm. an important thing mm -hmm. to understand, number one. And mm -hmm. I believe there are 14 characteristics of good money and no form of money in the present or in history scores well on all these characteristics. So it's, you know, every form of money has pros and cons, advantages and disadvantages. And then of course, over time, those characteristics can change as well. I mean, the, the salient example today is, well, scarcity is an important characteristic of money. And so if they keep printing more of it and they keep, and they start printing it at a faster rate, which has been happening in the last year, um, mm -hmm. then, mm -hmm. you know, the, that parameter is somewhat impaired, you know, for the form of money you're talking about. And here, of course, I'm talking about fiat currencies like the U S dollar and others. So that's item one is there are 14 characteristics of good money. Okay. Item two is there's this new, I don't even want to say new, but there's this relatively new form of money and it's Bitcoin mm -hmm. and it scores really well overall. And especially in some key characteristics where other forms of money like crypto or excuse me, like uh, fiat monies or fiat currencies mm -hmm. are, are, are getting worse. So, you know, and, and it has to do with identifiability or counterfeitability. Bitcoin scores mm -hmm. really well there. It has to do with scarcity. Obviously Bitcoin mm -hmm. is now as scarce as gold and becoming more scarce. Mm -hmm. um, it has to do with uh, divisibility and transmissibility or transferability. I, sh I should say, um, right censorship resistance, um, you know, unseizability, all these characteristics that make something useful as money, Bitcoin already scores pretty well at, and mm. it is improving. So, yeah. so now we say, well, okay, what's the, you know, upside potential as an investment if this thing is either becoming money or a better form of money, or it's some kind of monetary asset? Well, the clearest case is gold, right? Gold is a $10 trillion plus asset. And when you line up and score Bitcoin versus the characteristics of gold, surprise, surprise, Bitcoin already slightly outscores gold. And mm -hmm. Bitcoin is improving 
uh, whereas gold is not. Um, so, so just in the short term, the clearest uh, pillar of the investment case of the thesis is Bitcoin is better than gold overall, and so it's going to take market share from gold. And any significant share of a ten trillion dollar market is a pretty big number. But there are other characteristics um, that uh, you know, or there are other basically markets where Bitcoin can take share. It can take share from fiat money. It can take share from offshore assets. Um, it can take store of value share from many assets that people use basically to, to park value, like you know, empty apartments in right, Kensington. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Real estate, even stocks today, I would argue, are more and more being treated as as stores Store of value. value. Right. And uh, and then you know the fifth category is just if cool features get built on higher layers in the software stack above Bitcoin, then Bitcoin may be able to do things uh, that are software based that money just can't or won't do today. Micropayments, you know, streaming payments, you know, tipping people real time for services, you know, services provided over the internet, stuff like that, that, that just doesn't exist in the economy today. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, these are upside potential for Bitcoin. So, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the valuation and the upside case and the, you know, the framework for how to think about it as an investment. And of course Mm -hmm. we can talk about risks, but, uh, I hope that answers your question. That's a great tour. As I said, I think people, should definitely read the book. So you head up institution for this company called Swan Bitcoin. And as I understand it, it's a way for folks to start storing some value or saving in Bitcoin. Could you walk us through what that, how that works? Yeah, absolutely. It's exactly what you described. It's a saving mechanism for people that want to own Bitcoin for the long term. And it's really very simple. You, you know, you create an account, you link it to your bank account and then it transfers money out of your bank account, either on a weekly basis or on a daily basis. It sucks money out and puts it into Bitcoin. So if you want to dollar cost average your Bitcoin investment, your Bitcoin savings over time, it's a way to automate it. And it's the cheapest um, automation mechanism on the market today, uh, at least in the in the United States. And the reason dollar cost averaging for saving in Bitcoin is attractive is because, as you may know, Bitcoin uh, is volatile in terms of its uh, price, at least as measured in in dollar terms or fiat money terms. And so, you know, there are a lot of people that uh, there are a lot of people that lose a lot of sleep and uh, get a lot of gray hairs as a result mm-hmm. of trying to time their Bitcoin purchases. Right. And this system basically removes that uh, you know that stress of having to time the market. That's great. So probably about you know, a couple of months ago, I think I was, you know, every morning I get up, I sort of check the headlines and, you know, scroll through major news sources. And I come up with this article, uh, Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, company I've known for many years coming from the software world, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the business intelligence space, decides to buy $250 million of Bitcoin by using cash on his balance sheet from his treasury that he was supposed to steward for either investment in the company or for, you know, anti-inflation growth, if you will. And he buys Bitcoin. And I'm thinking, everybody's going to think this guy's crazy. Is he crazy? (laughs) He is decidedly not crazy. He has done his due diligence. He has done his homework. I'm sure you're right that a significant portion of the investing public 
at the time that it happened, which was last summer, or maybe yeah. it was early fall, yeah. thought he was crazy. Um, he's looking pretty smart at the moment since the price has tripled. But mm-hmm. um, but yes, no no doubt uh, no doubt people perceive him as crazy. Um, he has put out tons of great informational educational content. Um, I mean, he's done so many podcast appearances. I almost you know, I'm sure I can't list them all. Um, he did a series uh, with Robert Breedlove, you know, a series of interviews um, called What is Money? The What is Money podcast. And right. no, he is definitely not crazy. He um, he has been studying and investing in network native, Internet native phenomena, you know, companies as well as domain names, things of that nature. For well over a decade, as you pointed out, he's been in software. He's run a you know software business intelligence software company for I don't know, going on thirty years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and moreover, he studied uh, the history of science, and so he has this, I think, long term view about civilizational shifting technologies. And I think he views uh, Bitcoin as one of these foundational technologies that will have a significant impact on the world. I happen to believe he's right about that. And he, I think, has reached that conclusion based on, um, yeah, based on years of study, as well as, I don't know, 55 years of of life experience, something like that. So, yeah, I don't think he's crazy, although I can see that uh, some people probably do. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that Bitcoin is definitely transformational. I've been a technologist for you know, my entire life, but a professional technologist for the better part of 20 years. And when people ask me, you know, what is this all about? I say, well, 20 years ago, you were asking me, what's the internet? You know, I tell you what it's all about technology. It's really hard for you not to, well, I caution people who underestimate the power of technology to really transform the way we do things. You know, I live in New York and uh, I, I walk down the street and every now and then there's a specific corner in Soho that I come up to and it, it's got a phone booth there. And I'm thinking, wow, phone booth. <laughs> like my daughter has no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah. She never will, you know? That's right. It's really hard for people to wrap their heads around. And I don't know if that's, I mean, some have mm-hmm. hypothesized that it's evolutionary, right? It's because, you know, humans have only been living in an age of rapid technological yeah. improvement for right. i don't know That's a right. few centuries yeah, yeah. or at most you know a millennium or two you say you could say post-world war ii is like when things just accelerated right that's right so so if we most mostly evolved you know in the prior hundred thousand years plus you know then probably our minds are not designed to uh, to understand the mm-hmm. magnitude of the technological shift and then you layer on i'm sure you're familiar with amara's law um which is basically this concept that Technology shifts and people yep. in the short term overestimate, mm-hmm. you know, the impact it's going to have and they get excited mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they invest and you get bubbles, but then they underestimate the long-term impact. And I think that is a component of what's going on with Bitcoin right now, which is the thing's actually 12 years old, which for a network native, internet native phenomenon yeah. is pretty significant. I mean, by, by age 12, right. Amazon was pretty dominant. Facebook was pretty dominant. Um, you know, Google was pretty dominant and it's kind of reached that point where it's going to be hard to overtake in terms of its competitors. And then likewise, it's likely to actually start to yeah. sort of make a dent in the universe, right? Some of these giant, giant internet companies, the tech right. giants that yeah. we know and love and hate today, um, 
they became dominant by the end of decade one, but it was in decade two that they really started to make a dent in uh, in society. And I think that's what we may see with Bitcoin in this decade of the 2020s. I would I would agree with that, too. That's, you know, if you look at Amazon, it's 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 really only 27 years old and it, it is it is the dominant way you, you know, um, perform commerce, uh, e-commerce and you know, that's about 2x the age of Bitcoin, if you think about the effect that, and, and that's, that dominance has been based on the notion that the internet would transform the way we, we interact transactionally in, you know, in commerce. And it's, you know, proven to be true. That's exactly right. And in fact, since you mentioned Amazon, I'll, I'll mention an article that I published on Coindesk, and it was drawing the parallel between Bitcoin mm-hmm. and Amazon. And the parallel I drew was Bitcoin today or, you know, Bitcoin six months ago, let's say when, when the article was published, is like Amazon in 2005. Right. Which is to say it had gone through a bubble and true. a bust and pe- people had left, sort of left it for dead. Also true. And they were underestimating its potential impact. But simultaneously, if you looked at the competitive field at the time, it was relatively clear that Amazon was going to dominate at least in you know, in online retail. Um, It had sort of already achieved, it had achieved enough scale and enough um, share, at least of the online retail market, that it was relatively clear at that point that it was going to to dominate that segment. And that's kind of where I think we are with Mm -hmm. Bitcoin as it relates to, let's say, hard monetary assets, you know, comparable to gold. It's pretty clear now that, that Bitcoin is digital gold, now, will it become more than digital gold? Will it develop into something mm-hmm. bigger? You know, the the four other upside cases that I laid out mm-hmm. earlier, um, or the four other, let's say, total addressable right, markets, right. TAMs, we'll see. Yeah. Time will tell. Yeah. But, uh, but that's kind of where I think we are. That's great. And what drives that? See, Amazon, using that analogy, you've got, you know, Jeff Bezos and his team sort of thinking and inventing in new ways to grow the business and expand the definition of what Amazon is, and the name is apropos, right? Because it's like this giant forest, you know, you know, rainforest that you can keep finding new and interesting things in forever. Um, with Bitcoin, you know, is is it going to be driven by? Is its a broad adoption be driven by new use cases, right? So we, you, you know, we we spend a year living a pandemic. There is a tremendous change in inflationary pressures around a specific type of currency, and everybody is looking for some someplace else to put it. A innovative person decides to take their treasury and deploy a tremendous amount of capital, and it un- un- unleashes everybody's eyes to, huh, that's an interesting, why did he do that? <laughs> and then they try it, right? So you've got insurance companies like Mass Mutual bought $100 million of it, you know? You, you've got some some major players coming into it. And that could be one of those things where, you know, they try it for a while, they learn, and then eventually it has a role. And then it's just sort of like, it's an old thing. It's just there. Then you see PayPal and Visa. Walk us through from your perspective, like what's the equivalent of like, you know, yeah. Jeff's man, Jeff, Jeff and his management team driving the adoption of this yeah. new technology. Yeah, no, it's a really great question. And I actually addressed that a little bit in the in the article that I mentioned, which, by the way, is called Financial Advisors. Bitcoin is the next Amazon cool. um, for people's reference. And so here's how I would frame how I would frame it. 
So first of all, now Bitcoin is a different thing than than Amazon because Amazon is a company. It has a management team, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. and it has, in fact, an exceptional management team. Yeah. So, you know, that's worth considering. Yeah. Okay. However, my basic understanding of a major uh, factor in how Amazon developed was Bezos and his management team <clears throat> realized they would need, in order to become, let's say, dominant and really scale up in retail on the internet, they would have, they needed some tools. Um, and so they looked in some cases at what were components of their cost structure mm-hmm. and actually created products around those. Now, the classic obvious case is AWS, Amazon Web Services. You know, my understanding is that his team figured out that, oh, you know, we need, in order to adequately serve our customers, we're going to need a lot more computation that is distributed in cloud format. And we don't see, you know, a great service provider. So we're just going to build our own internally. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. of course, that worked brilliantly. Yeah. Now, I would draw an analogy to Bitcoin, which is, okay, Bitcoin is a protocol. Right. And the protocol is mostly set in stone, like it's mostly ossified. Are there some changes, some upgrades that are likely to happen? Yes. But for the most part, it's it's already set up. And what I would say is, Similar to, you know, not having a, uh, a cloud-based computational architecture to build on and Amazon saying, let's build that. Then what, you're, what you were describing with, you know, PayPal mm-hmm. and others building functionality onto Bitcoin, it's a little bit comparable. It's like, well, Bitcoin can do a lot of things, but, mm-hmm. you know, payments and easy uh, transfer right. and easy, you know, uh, purchasing and selling those don't exist. So, you know, let's build those onto the protocol. Right. So I think there's a parallel there. Now, the difference, and I think this is actually to the advantage of Bitcoin, is that since Bitcoin is open source, anybody can build on it, right? right. Not the case with a centralized company. Right. And so, you know, of the extensions and second layers and services and new protocols that bring fun, uh, bring additional functionality that are being built on top of Bitcoin, right? you know, 99% of them will fail. Yeah. And that's fine because there are literally thousands or tens of thousands of entrepreneurs, uh, software developers, really smart, ambitious people that are building new functionality on top of Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is the uh, protocol layer. Mm-hmm. A little bit analogously uh, to how people built on other major internet protocols like, you know, SMTP you right. know, is the mail yeah, protocol. That's right. Well, okay, you had Yahoo build on that. You had, you know, Gmail build on that. You had this competition among email providers. Right. And you ended up with really great, you know, services. I mean, they had their downsides, but basically they work really well. Um, likewise with, you know, basically TCP IP, which, which everybody uses in in internet land all these amazing services draw on that protocol so i think that's the that's the sort of the parallel versus um, versus amazon but also the difference with open source that makes bitcoin potentially even uh, that much more versatile and brings even more growth uh, potential yeah no that's great and if you were to extrapolate that out a few years when when bitcoin is its role in 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 the world, if you will, is more it, it's fully mature. Let's say, like the internet protocol, to some extent, we'll probably talk less about Bitcoin the protocol 
maybe we'll talk more about Bitcoin, the digital asset or transaction platform. How do you think that, what do you think that looks like? Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're right, John, is as with any newer technology or newer protocol, using it in the early days is hard and difficult. Um, The user experience, you know, is poor. And so basically it's just hard to function on the base layer. And then people, you know, clever designers and entrepreneurs and software devs build better, easier functionality on top. Right. And then, yeah, 95% of humanity, you know, just uses those easier, higher layers. Yeah. So I do think that in the same way that I can send you an email with my Gmail account, but I have no idea how to use, you know, the the basic uh, email protocol. That's right. That's um, right. Yeah. You know, the SMTP, I have no idea how to do that. I think so it will be with uh, with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting and important, though, is the base layer will will always be accessible. It may become more expensive to transact on the base layer. Um, transaction fees may go up a lot, you know, if it becomes more widely adopted, which I do expect. Uh-huh. However, the key is that the key is that having access to the base layer of this monetary asset it helps keep the players, the actors in the ecosystem honest. Right. Because if the service providers or if those uh, user interfaces on top don't take care of their customers properly, ultimately people can route around and go to the base layer. Right. So, yeah, basically I agree with you with that that caveat that I just stated. That's great. And how how do you see the effect on something like this on developing countries who tend to be, you know, non-participants, if you will, on the on the global financial network, you know, yeah, and, and the individuals in those countries. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, so I'll just pick a few spots. Okay. The first is, and I wrote about this in my book, is it's sort of amazing that you know the majority of the world has internet access now, and yet there are call it two billion people that don't really have access to the financial system, right? And that is very disappointing. And the question I ask in the book is, how is that possible? Like, why why is that the case? Mm-hmm. I believe it's because of the costs that were imposed on the banking system post 9-11, right? You had the Patriot Act. And what the Patriot Act did is it extended potential liability for banks and money transmitters mm-hmm. beyond their own, their own activities to the activities of those they were interacting with, right? Mm-hmm. It was like the bank takes on responsibility, not just for its own customers, but also sort of its customers, customers, or other intermediaries. Mm-hmm. So what that has done is, and as you know, you know, basically to be a functioning bank in the global banking system, you have to have corresponding relationships with, with other global banks. And so the big banks looked at the potential liability they faced, you know, with respect to terrorist financing and they decided you know we're just not gonna you know we're not gonna bother trying to do business with people in developing or poorer countries Mm -hmm. because the you know there's some fixed compliance cost you know per customer effectively and so that works you know if that compliance cost is you know a hundred dollars per customer in the u.s or, or european countries that that business model works, but if it's a compliance cost of $100 per customer in you know parts of developing Africa, well, that doesn't work because the the total 
potential value of that customer doesn't exceed the compliance cost. Mm -hmm, so I mm -hmm. think that those rules that came out at 9-11 really imposed this effective tax on the poorest people globally, and it effectively excluded them from financial systems, which is terrible because these people are the ones that you know most, uh, most need the access. When you think about what does access to a financial system mean, it means having access to an ability to transact without carrying wads of cash around and, you know, carrying wads of cash around is probably most dangerous in uh, in some of those developing countries on average, I'm saying, right. generalizing. Right. Okay. So Bitcoin obviously fixes this. If you have internet access, you can download an open source and or free wallet. You can access the Bitcoin network. Um, that's, you know, that's pretty huge. Um, as it relates to, you know, countries joining financial systems in other ways, you know, the U.S. especially has made access to the dollar system a weapon, right? We have weaponized access to, to dollars, to, um, to the SWIFT system and to the, the dollar settlement system. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that has been, you know, done for good reasons. But as with any weapon, uh, once it's put in your hand, you often overuse it once you can. Right. And so there are plenty of countries around the world that I think have fair and, uh, you know, fair and righteous grievances against how the U.S. has used the dollar as a bludgeon. And so people in those countries and governments in those countries are likely to find Bitcoin attractive for the reason that, uh, yeah, they, they aren't subject to the whim right. of political decisions in the United States or the rest of the West. Yeah. So th that's what I'd say about that. That's great. Yeah, you're right. There's so much to unpack there. But the world works a certain way right now. And this technology could unseat that, right, and completely change kind of like a, a whole new dynamic around uh, around that power infrastructure, if you will. Yeah, that's right. Or or just compete with it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. At least balance it out. Right. That's right. And I, spe I especially like that framing with the with the banking system mm -hmm. globally, mm -hmm. which is, as we know, the banks are too big to fail. I wrote about this in my book too. Mm -hmm. They have captured their regulators. That's right. Right. You've got yeah. the revolving door. Yeah. They never want them to go out of business. Yeah. And that's right. Exactly. They, they get hired in government. They get, they move up through government and then they get hired by industry and they get, make their fat paychecks on the, on the exit. Um, because, you know, basically the industry they're regulating knows, uh, they're going to, they're going to take care of, uh, going to take care of the industry on, on both sides of it. So, right. Yeah, so it's um, Im even imposing some level of competition on uh, on this monopolistic, oligopolistic, and uh, you know, government capturing industry will be good for consumers uh, in general. Mm. No, that's that's fantastic. So, Andy, I want to I want to come back to the Amazon analogy and the, the the Internet Protocol to kind of set up the next part of the conversation here. I want to talk to you about. So, you know, if you look at the Internet, there's this book called the world is flat. Um, I believe the author is Thomas Friedman. Tom Friedman, right? Yep. Yeah. He's uh, it's a great book. I read it many years ago, and it basically tells the story about what the boom and bust of the internet ultimately did to transform the world and make it more connected. Mm -hmm. And um, what I was fascinated by was the fact that, you know, in order to create this new 
envision future state of the world, which is a super digital, everything is, is online. There were a whole set of companies that were born, they used a lot of capital to build out the infrastructure that would support that future state. Right. So you had like the WorldComs and <laughs> digital, uh, I'm trying to remember some of these names back in the late 90s, but they build pipes that connected continents. And then, uh, yeah, Global Crossing. Thank you. That, that, that was the one I was thinking of. And, uh, and then you had a shifting in terms of the role of telecommunications companies. They didn't just provide telephone service anymore even though they were saying this internet thing is nothing, it became their business. Mm -hmm. They built out infrastructure to provide digital services and integrated voice and data and so forth. And so suddenly you not only had this globally connected infrastructure that ran the TCP IP protocol and SMTP, right? Sort of underlying, you know, what we see today is Google or Facebook and so forth. We don't even realize there's this huge infrastructure underneath that because of the rise and fall and crash and so forth, money was spent to build this out, made these things ever more possible, okay? Now, look at the Bitcoin world. In a way, some of that is also happening, right? You have the protocol itself and you have this global open source community, which can continue to innovate and expand the platform at high rates. And they're, they are driven, right, and loyal members of that force. And then you've got this mining industry whose job is to see the transactions, validate them, and expend energy to perform very complex computing processing to support that. And the more the asset grows in value and becomes, you know, becomes ubiquitous, the more that role is important. And so you've gone from having people mining under their desk for, with with free power from the either university or their job right to, right right college college kids you know yeah. scraping a few extra bucks uh, running mining rigs yeah I know it used to be yep. like a hobbyist thing right now it's become an industrial enterprise right so mm-hmm. you know those big companies are kind of like the telcos of the past that you know build these huge facilities to provide this security and transaction processing if you will for this protocol and ultimately that becomes the infrastructure layer for all the applications that are going to be um, supported. And what's interesting is that this this new industrial infrastructure is also connected to power. And there's mm-hmm. two different you know worlds. One one is you know Bitcoin's use of power is bad, but then on, on the other hand, Bitcoin's use of power could be used to make the case, like Steve uh, Thomas Friedman did in, in in the world is flat that it actually could potentially drive the expansion of renewable energy in the world such that renewable energy is part of that is part of that base layer if you will but is also part of the overall infrastructure that will support this new economy sorry to take so long to set it up but what do you think about that concept yeah no i love that concept and uh, there's so much wrapped up in there so first mm-hmm. of all yes you're right that today i think the public perception is that bitcoin uses tons of energy and that's bad and I take the view of what you just set up, which is um, sort of the opposite. And I'm going to invoke uh, something that I have been talking about for, I don't know, a year or two. I know you've been talking about it as well, mm-hmm. but which I didn't have I didn't have a, a proper sort of prior analytic framework around. Yeah. And I discovered it recently. And in fact, I was there's a podcast uh, called The Investor's Podcast. Mm-hmm. And. I was featured on a recent um, episode, but also featured on a recent episode was Kathy Wood. And Kathy Wood, who runs ARK Invest, 
was a relatively early Bitcoin investor. And her firm uh, has published on this concept called Wright's Law. And the background is there's this guy, Theodore Wright, and he was an aeronautical engineer mm-hmm. and an educator, and he was advisor to FDR. I mean, he was doing his work, you know, close to a century ago. Yeah. And what he quantified was this basic framework. He was looking at, at the time at first at, at airplane construction, and what he found was that every doubling in the number of airplanes produced resulted in, call it a 15% reduction in the production cost. Mm-hmm. And at first he was focusing on the labor costs, but he extended this idea. And the idea was the more units of something you build, the lower the average cost. And that is sort of obvious and intuitive. I mean, people in the tech space like you Mm -hmm. have known about Moore's law. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and in fact, if you do the math, according to, to the people at ARC, Moore's law is actually a derivative effectively of, of Wright's law. Mm, Like a special case. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like a special case. Exactly Mm -hmm. right. And so if you apply this to uh, to Bitcoin mining, what you realize is Bitcoin is the first case of a global market for electricity. And I'll explain why. As you know, one of the problems with uh, electricity production and consumption is that electricity doesn't travel that well. I mean, yes, you can travel, you know, it'll travel 50 miles or 100 miles, but you can't build a plant in the middle of a remote area and then serve a population center 500 miles away. There's too much loss of energy. Right. However, uh, you can build a Bitcoin mining facility because you don't need the electricity to travel all that distance. All you need is an internet connection and you don't even need that much bandwidth. So what's happening with Bitcoin is all these otherwise stranded sources of energy and major components are, uh, you know, deserts, basically, where you can set up solar arrays, as well as windy locations, you know, some are offshore, some are, you know, in the middle of the plains where where nobody lives. Now, these energy production facilities can potentially be economic because you set up a bunch of mining rigs in a data center, uh, Mm -hmm. an activity with with which you are well familiar. Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, and and basically, yeah, you, you can make an economic return on that. So what does that mean? Well, it means the units produced and installed of solar panels and wind turbines and all the associated uh, gear that's required to install clean, green energy production capacity right. is going up rapidly because there's all this, you know, there's all this new demand. That's right. So, you know, if solar panels, you know, if units shipped, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my hand, you know, uh, top of my head go up by 2x and 4x and 8x and 16x, um, then the cost of production, the total installed as well as operating cost of that solar and likewise the wind is going to be reduced. And so Bitcoin is actually acting as a catalyst for a more rapid reduction, mm. a more rapid move down the cost curve for clean green energy, especially solar and wind that in the absence of Bitcoin, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't see happening. And so why is that important? Well, obviously it's important for the long term, but it's important even in, you know, a five-year, 10-year time span, because in developing countries where they sort of don't have the luxury of thinking about total, fully carbon cost loaded, you know, cost of energy, right? If you're, I don't know, if you're some, um, 
you know, governor of some province in India or Pakistan. Right. And you're like, I got people living on, you know, five dollars a day. I got to give them the cheapest cost of energy, regardless of the um, environmental effect. Right. You know, if the coal plant is cheaper, I'm installing the coal plant and then I'm stuck with that coal plant for the next 40 years. So right. these CapEx decisions, these investment decisions um, are going to be made over the next few years uh, in parts of the world that have huge populations that are going to consume a lot of energy. So if we can accelerate the reduction in the fully loaded cost of clean, green energy before those CapEx decisions are made, then you know we'll have an installed base that is cleaner and greener sooner on average, and we'll hopefully have a reduction in the new installs of dirtier forms of energy mm. and an increase in new installs of cleaner forms of energy. No, that's a that's a that's a great case. So if I play that back, you know, Friedman made the case that the global demand for connectivity and bandwidth led to, you know, huge investments in the infrastructure, which ultimately brought that infrastructure cost down, which allowed it to expand more, which then catalyzed global connectivity, collaboration, all the things that actually made us pretty resilient to this pandemic in a way. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Think about it. You know, now Bitcoin that has this growing need for computing resources and cheap, clean energy can drive the continued investment in that resource, therefore the cost down and could therefore catalyze significant, you know, progress on climate change. That's right. That's exactly right. And it's, you know, people ask the question, well, like, why, you know, why now? Or why is, you know, why is, is Bitcoin different? Like, why is it the catalyst, yeah. you know, for this change in market structure? Right. And the answer to that is, is what I described with, with the, you know, the remote source of energy. Mm -hmm. The nature of dirty energy, fossil fuels, mm -hmm. is unlike electricity, they actually travel really well, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The beauty of coal and the beauty of oil is you can s pull them out of the ground thousands of miles away from where you consume them. That's right. And that, and so that is why all the fossil fuels, well, let's say most of the fossil fuels have been fully exploited globally. And therefore, you know, there's been huge advances in the prior century in cheapening the cost of production for these dirty, you know, dirtier energy resources. So that's behind us. So the cost, we've already sort of mostly come down the cost curve, we think, mm -hmm. in fossil fuels. Right. But this unlocking of all this new uh, supply of, uh, of, of clean energy right. means that uh, that's a relatively new phenomenon that, right. that Bitcoin uh, is catalyzing. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's great. That's great. So let's, let's put your financial hat back on and just uh, talk a little bit about regulation. You know, I've read at least one comment. I think it was in the Ray Dalio, you know, why, what do I really think about Bitcoin? Mm -hmm. He sort of, it was kind of a veiled view of what could happen to Bitcoin if it truly becomes competitive to the existing financial system, right? It could, it could suddenly be banned. And we're starting to see efforts to do that in India and some other countries. Does that make sense to do that? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, it's so the, the quote unquote banning risk and what I, what I call it is what it really is, right? Which is prohibition, right? So the question exactly. is, what is the risk of, what is the risk of prohibition? And to me, the risk of prohibition is rather low, you know, mm. single digit percentages, you know, let's say over the next decade, you know, in, in this country, in the U S yeah. So why is, why is the risk so low? Well, the risk is so low for a number of factors. First of all, um, 
as with alcohol prohibition, right. um, when people want to use a product, and here the product is hard money asset in the case of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. when people want to use the product, they're going to use the product, legal or not. <laughs> yeah. And so if there is demand, and in a world of near infinite money printing, I'm pretty confident there's going to be demand for this stuff, mm-hmm. then you can prohibit it and push it into the shadows you know, and turn a bunch of your population into criminals. But ultimately it's going to get reversed, right? Right. Just as with alcohol prohibition, you know, almost a century ago. Right. So you can take this much harder path where you basically, you know, subsidize organized crime. Right. (laughs) Right. Via policy. Right. (laughs) Or you cannot do that. So I think that our leaders are probably smart enough to, to take the easier path. Now there's other reasons as well. Mm -hmm. One of them is, is the innovation imperative. So going back to, to the history of the internet, which mm-hmm. with you are or with which you are well familiar, yeah. there was actually a time, as you I'm sure know, when when there was talk of treating hosting a website as being the same as being a broadcaster and therefore requiring a broadcast license from the FCC. Right? Yeah, that's right. Imagine yeah. imagine that yeah, imagine that everyone who was hosting a website was uh, was treated as a regulated broadcaster in right. in this country. Yeah. What would have happened? Yeah. Well, the internet would have not flourished here. It would have flourished in other parts of the world. That's right. And all the internet giants, you know, Apple, Google, um, Facebook, Amazon would be uh European or British or Chinese. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know. Yeah, yeah. It would these giant companies that created huge amounts of profits, um, yeah, would 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 have happened elsewhere. So I think that our leadership understands that keeping innovation in the U.S. and likewise, you know, uh, leadership in other countries realizes that this is an opportunity, basically, to to foster a new industry or relatively new industry, or let's say the next generation of the internet, which is going to accrue huge value to those jurisdictions where it is not only allowed, but um, you know, basically encouraged to flourish. So I think that's another factor that argues in favor of not going the prohibition route. So I think, and then the last piece is the economics of this thing, the game theory and the way it's constructed are such that even if it's prohibited or you know difficult to use, uh, to use Bitcoin or digital currencies or digital... Uh, networks um in some jurisdictions mm-hmm. those jurisdictions that do allow it and adopt it mm-hmm. are going to be that much wealthier so right you know you you either if you don't play the game basically you're going to be left behind right and so for all these reasons i think that uh, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to face prohibition or effective or de facto prohibition either in the united states or you know in most countries in the world frankly yeah I get your point. I mean, the, the the people who would try to do this presumably are smart people, and they would they would game it out, right? <laughs> and then and they would say, "Do we really want that outcome? Because that could happen." <laughs> That's right. And by the way, I so I I agree with you in one respect, and then I di- disagree in another, and that also plays into Bitcoin's hand, which is the thing about Bitcoin is government has, for the most part, ignored it mm-hmm. up to this point, right? which has been a good thing. Yeah. And now it's already too hard to kill. Right. And it's already in too many people's hands. Yeah. And there's already too many uh, supporters and zealots like me. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. who, are, who are basically bought in and who are going to support this right. and who are going to revolt against, um, you know, 
let's say, draconian uh, regulation. We had an example of this, okay, very recently in the on the eve of uh, basically literally at the end of December over the holiday break. The U.S. Treasury, the outgoing Treasury Administration, mm-hmm. attempted to impose a bunch of new rules uh, on Bitcoin transactions mm. and and reporting. And there was a groundswell of, uh, let's say, pushback um, from the industry. There were comments. You know, they have to solicit comments basically on these new these new rules that come right. out of Treasury. Yeah, and. Uh, there were literally thousands of comments submitted. I think it was eight or nine or 10,000 comments submitted in a period of a few days. Wow. Um, requesting, you know, a longer review period, uh, articulating reasons why the proposed rules didn't make sense, wouldn't work. And it seems to have worked. The The rules were basically pulled for the moment. The comment period was, or, or so I should say the review period was extended into this administration. So, we don't know yet how it'll turn out, and we don't know what n- new rulemaking will happen. But it was a good example of there was a groundswell of support uh, in this country that became very evident as a result of this attempt to uh, impose these uh, these new, more draconian rules. And so it was just an illustration of the fact that there's already quite a lot of support for Bitcoin and digital assets uh, here in the U.S. And so it's already uh, you know it's already grown to a scale. That is going to be extremely difficult to uh, to clamp down on or to impede. Andy, this has been a fantastic session together here. I've learned a great deal, and I hope our listeners did as well. And, and thanks for indulging me on the dichotomy or comparison between the internet and what's what's happening with this with this asset. Yeah. Well, hey, John, the pleasure's been uh, the pleasure's been mine. Um, I'm really interested and excited in the work uh, you're doing with respect to building out you know, the data center infrastructure that's going to support this, uh, this burgeoning and growing and exciting industry. So I'm pleased that, uh, that you're doing your part and I'm going to be watching with great interest, uh, you know, to see what you, what you build with your team. Thanks so much, Andy. And where can people learn more about your perspective and more about the book? Yeah, thanks, John. Pleasure's been mine. So the book is called Why Buy Bitcoin? It's available on Amazon and Apple and other places you can get books. Follow me on Twitter. My handle is Edstrom Andrew, which is just last name, first name. You can find other podcast uh, conversations I've had on andyedstrom.com, as well as articles that I've published. And if you're interested in uh, accumulating Bitcoin, you can check out swanbitcoin.com forward slash Andy and uh, get 10 bucks worth of free Bitcoin. Fantastic. Thanks so much again for joining us, Andy. Been a pleasure. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. You can find more information on what you've heard today in our show notes. To join our growing community, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for Saluna and following our corporate page. Or tag us on Twitter. We're at Saluna Holdings. To learn more about Saluna and our innovative projects, visit our website at salunacomputing.com and visit our blog, Clean Integration on Medium. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps boost us in the charts and others to find us. Thank you for listening to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. And remember, computing is a better battery. See you next time.